Good morning, and uh, it's almost time to say Merry Christmas. I'm glad you're here today. Have you ever faced a moment where you were experiencing utter hopelessness? I remember the very first time I felt this way. I was a teenager. I was probably about 18, something like that. I was, I was hunting in an area that I'd never hunted in before. This was back in West Virginia. I was on a friend's, we started on a friend's farm, and then we all just kind of uh, went out into the hills of, of, of West Virginia. And I remember it was late fall. I was walking through these knee-deep leaves and having a good time. Had my rifle up on my shoulder. I remember coming up on top of a ridge, thinking I would look down and I would see my friend's farm. And I got on top of that ridge and looked down, and there was no farm to be seen anywhere. And I'll never forget in that moment thinking, I don't want to be wandering around in these woods like the rest of my life. I mean, I was, I was picturing <laughs> starving to death. I had a rifle. So it tells you what a, a woodsman I had my rifle and a deer, and I was afraid of starving to death. But uh, yeah, it was a moment where I was just, I just felt this like, this terror come over me. And it, it felt like I had at least in that second, like I had no chance of making it out of there. And I felt for the first time just this sense of absolute hopelessness. See, the opposite of hope is hopelessness or despair. And hopelessness and despair are something that you cannot live with. I came across a powerful article called Dying of Despair. It was written by a, psychi a psychiatrist, and he's observing this startling rise in deaths from suicide and drug overdoses. And he points to a lot of long-term studies that have been analyzed about the differences between high-risk patients, some who do take their lives, and some who do not. And he said you could summarize that study um, in this conclusion. He said, over a 10-year span, it turns out that the one factor most strongly predictive of suicide is not how sick the person is, nor how many symptoms he exhibits, nor how much physical pain he is suffering, nor whether he is rich or poor. The most dangerous factor is a person's sense of hopelessness. In another article that came in the New York Times, it goes into a little more depth as to what can cause this sense of despair and this sense of hopelessness. It says this, uh, in talking about America, as, as manufacturing and construction jobs have evaporated and wages have stagnated, blue-collar workers have turned to alcohol and opioids to numb their misery. To put it bluntly, middle-aged white Americans are dying of despair. Pay very, very close attention to this next sentence that I'm about to read. These men, and here's the word, expected to lead better lives than their parents. We're looking at people who were raised to believe in the American dream and are coping badly with its failure to come true. Life is often not what we expect. And despair is all around us. Um, and we cannot live without some sense of hope. And see, hopelessness has so many root causes. We, 
we looked at this, this expectation of the American dream that many have and don't find. But it can come from joblessness. It can come from a financial crisis. It can come from a health crisis. It can, can, it can come when relationships feel like they're breaking down right in front of our eyes. And we don't know what to do. And it fills us with this sense of dread. And in its worst form, it can become an absolute sense of hopelessness or despair. I'm guessing that there are people sitting here right now that are somewhere on that spectrum. Maybe you're not all the way over to the place of despair to where you just don't want to live anymore, but you're somewhere in there. We live in a dark and broken world. And oftentimes in this dark and broken world, a sense of hopelessness and despair can be found quite often. It can often be found even among those who profess Christ. So in dealing with that, the question is, how can we be hopeful in the middle of this broken and sinful world? With all the things going on around us, we have 24-7 reminders of it all day, how can we still be hopeful in this broken world that we live in? The passage we're going to read today comes from Luke chapter 2. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 20. Luke 2, 8 through 20. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You may be seated. So we're in this third week now, this third week of looking at these characters in Christmas. And we're seeing all these different aspects of the people to whom God first interacted with as Christ was coming into the world. There's a lot to be learned from them. And now we come across these, these shepherds. Uh, these shepherds may be the ones to whom we most identify with. You know, we had the wise men last week, and we, we lit their candle this morning. But now we get to these, these shepherds, and we see these guys. And I want to make three observations this morning about the message that these shepherds received, how they received it, how they interacted with it, why it perhaps even came to them. 
make three observations about that message, and then want to talk about Christian expectations in a fallen world. Christian expectations in a fallen world. So let's start out with some observations about these shepherds. And the first thing you notice in this passage is that the message came in the mundane. The message came in the mundane. Look at verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. It was a night just like any other night. These shepherds hanging out. I don't know what they did back then. They, I don't know if they circled around a little rock and maybe played spades. I don't know. They were just sort of hanging out in the field, doing what they did every night and had been for a, a long, long time. They have no clue about this interruption that's about to change their life forever. They're just doing what they do. They're being dutiful. This was their job. I mentioned last week something about this spiritual discipline of waiting, waiting on God, waiting for the next thing to happen. Most of us at some point in our lives, for a very long time sometimes, are in a place of waiting. The world had been waiting for the Savior to come. And these men were waiting, but they were being dutiful while they were waiting. You know, this word Advent, we kick it around a lot. Well, what in the world does it actually mean? It's not one we use in everyday conversation. Advent means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. That's right out of the dictionary. That is Advent. It's the arrival. The first Advent was when Christ came and put on humanity. There will be a second Advent. And actually, when you sing the words, joy to the world, again, we often sing this at Christmas time, but it's pointing towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. I, I feel good that I fried Sam's brains. That's not, it's not easy to fry his brains, but, but we found a way. So it's, that is the Advent. It reminds me of a story I heard about, uh, about a dog named Hachi. And you may or may not have heard this story. It's a true story about a man named Parker Wilson. He was a professor in Tokyo, Japan. And he stepped off a train one day and found this little puppy. It was an Akita. And the dog had actually busted out of a crate. And that little Akita he found it there on the platform didn't look like anybody was its owner. So he picked it up and he took it home with him. And they really developed this, this deep attachment. So much so that every morning when Parker Wilson would go to the train station, this little dog would just follow right after him. And then when he'd get on the train, he would go back home again. And it, was, it trained itself so well, it was so devoted to its master, that when it heard the train whistle again in the evening, it would go back out to the platform. And it would meet him there and follow him home. And this went on for a long time until one day while he was at school, uh, Parker Wilson had a fatal heart attack. And what happened that evening? The dog did what it always did. It came to the platform, and it waited for 10 years for its master to come home. As a matter of fact, here's a picture of the dog. This was in 1935. And at that same platform in Tokyo, they built a statue to that dog, Hachi, that waited and waited for his master to come home. See, this dog shows this true spirit of faithfulness 
and loyalty and duty while you're waiting. And of course, Christians, you know, we experience these times of waiting. We're in a season of waiting right now. We are desperately, and I don't know how you feel, but I'm ready for that second coming of Christ. Amen. I'm ready. Because life is not easy. And there's something much, 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 much better that's coming. But in the meantime, we are dutiful to do the things that God has given us to do until he gets back. Like these shepherds, they were just carrying forth in the mundane duty of life, and then it happened. So, I also want to make a second observation here that the message also came to the meek. The message came to the meek. I chose the word meek because it starts with the letter M. I need, I need a nice alliteration here. But a meek person is a humble person. Uh, a meek person exhibits humility, and that's what we see with these shepherds. Frankly, they weren't that well thought of at the time. They were thought of dirty and smelly. As a matter of fact, there was, there was a Jewish historian named Philo at the time that was quoted as saying he, uh, shepherds were mean and inglorious. Uh, inglorious just means they were like disgraceful. You know, frankly, didn't, you didn't need super social skills to do what they were doing. They probably weren't the most charismatic. They weren't the most well-dressed. They did what they did. They shepherded. Sheep don't talk. They did their jobs. And then, uh, picking up in verse 9, then this event happens, and they're never going to be the same again. It says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I'm guessing, I'm guessing they sort of soiled their shepherdly clothing at the time, after what they saw. And the angel said to them, Fear not. They always say, Fear not. Just settle down. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This was an awesome moment. Let's just try. As much as we can imagine... These guys go from absolute terror. You can imagine, you've never seen an electric light before in your life. You've never seen fireworks before in your life. And all of a sudden, light person appears in the sky out of nowhere. You don't know really what it is. You've heard of angels, but you've never seen one like this. Hanging out, just hovering, talking to you. And then in verse 11, it says, for you. It literally says, this is for your advantage that Christ has come. And three descriptive words there. He was the Savior. A Savior is a term means he's going to save you from, from enemies, save you from disease. He is Christ. He is the anointed one. He is from the line of David. This is the one you Jews have been expecting from the line of David all along. He's the Messiah is the Hebrew word for it. He's the one for whom all the messianic prophecies were telling he's here. And then finally, he's Lord. Christ the Lord. The title Christ and he is Lord. He is, he is supernatural. He is not like us. He will divinely 
with the power of God bring salvation. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. This was a spectacularly brought message to incredibly humble men who would find the King of Kings, God Himself, as a little baby in a food trough for animals. Christ's life is bookended by the strangest of humilities, came in a food trough, would die nailed to a cross. A crucifixion that was reserved for the worst of criminals. Now think about this response versus the response that we looked at last week. King Herod. King Herod wanted to kill Jesus. It was a threat to him. The gospel message is always a threat to prideful people because it says, guess what, you're a sinner and you can't do it on your own. I want to make it clear right now, this is going to be a message about we're going to get to the hope and the peace and the joy, but guess what, I can offer you none of that apart from the salvation of Jesus Christ. I offer you no hope in this world outside of Jesus Christ. Amen. We try to make Christmas as happy as we can. It is a joyous occasion. But it's also a very hard occasion if we set our hearts on, on Christmas manufacturing happiness. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's a letdown. The only way we can receive salvation is to be humble enough to swallow our pride and say, God, I can't do it on my own. And I, if you're here this morning and you have not entrusted your immediate life on earth and your eternal life to Jesus Christ, you can do it right there in your seat. It's simply an acknowledgement that, wow, you know what? I am a sinner just like everybody else. And I need saved just like everybody else. And I believe that Jesus Christ was fully man, fully God, came to earth, went to the cross, took that cancer called sin in his own body and died for me. And I'm trusting in that saving work of Jesus Christ Three days later, he was resurrected from the dead. That is where hope, peace, and joy begins. Amen. If you're looking for the beginning of the road, that's where it starts. Trusting Christ as your Savior. But there's this humility that comes with accepting that, me that, that message. I'm reminded by, of, a, of a story uh, Tim Keller told about the humility that comes in accepting some gifts. Uh, he talks about going under your Christmas tree and you find the gifts there. And you open up that first gift under the Christmas tree from a friend of yours, and you find out they just gave you a book on dieting. Okay? And then you, you, you thank them for that gift. And then you come to the second gift, and it's, it's a gift on overcoming selfishness. So for you, to, for you to thank those people for those gifts, it takes a step of humility because, in essence, you're saying, well, I'm overweight and obnoxious. <laughs> thank you for reminding me of that. It takes humility to accept some gifts. If somebody gives you a financial gift, it takes humility to accept that financial gift and admit, man, I need some help. So acceptance of this good gift requires humility. And we see the meekness of these shepherds. Um, and, and picking up in verse 13, well, the third part, the third observation I want to make is that the message also commanded amazement and action. It commanded amazement and action. Picking up in verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. 
They weren't just going to get, if they were freaked out by one angel, what came with that would have put them on their faces. There was a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with, him who, with whom he is pleased. So now there's a whole, whole lot of angels. And it's a host. It's a multitude. This isn't just uh, angels as we probably think of them. You know, when you read about angels, uh, let me make something very clear, by the way. Uh, people don't, Christians don't die on earth and become angels, okay? Angels were made before creation of the earth. The angels have existed. Christians don't die and become angels. Angels are their own created sort of being. And by the way, not all of them even look human. Some of them look more animal-like. So they were seeing these beings. This, this is like the entourage of God himself. I, I don't know how to describe what it was they saw. They were singing. I don't know if they were somehow flying in unison. I, I have no idea. But this commanded amazement. I've seen some pretty good fireworks displays. I've never seen anything like this. Praising God, saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. These angels had been waiting millennia for this moment. And there's an angel out there with a horn that's waiting to blow it to signal the next coming of Jesus Christ. Been holding that horn a long, long time. The shepherds see and they hear all of this. And then what? Go to verses 15 and 16. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They understand the source. The source was God himself. Uh, and, they, and they went with haste. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And it was as the angels had told them. They saw everything, everything the angels described. They found the baby in the food trough, in swaddling clothes, well swaddled. And then verse 20, And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Once you get that gospel message, once you receive it, you hear it, you believe it, you are going to be on the ride of your life. I had no idea when I was six years old at vacation Bible school, I had no idea what life was going to look like after that. I had no idea um, that, that two years ago, Melissa and I were going to get down on our knees and simply pray the prayer, God, we'll go wherever you want us to go. We'll go, we'll, we'll do whatever you want us to do. You know, we had our family there in West Virginia. We had our friends there in West Virginia. Now, we had no idea he was going to bring us to the, the promised land. <laughs> but he did. It's been way better than we could have ever imagined it was going to be. We, I, by the way, I didn't say that in the second service, so... Know that we're thrilled with, with where God's brought us. We, we've got zero regrets. Was it hard to leave? Yeah. We thought we'll start in the United States and then just keep working outward. But have you ever just got on your knees and called out to God and said, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go and I'll do what you want me to do? You see, these shepherds, they got the message and what did they do? 
They went. They did it. God said, go, and they went, and they did it. The same thing comes to us. We have an advantage because we, who are believers this morning, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's why we can make confident decisions about our lives in the future because we're receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's working in us. And even when things are like, I have no idea how I ended up here. Even in that moment, God says, I've got you right where I want you to be. We just make the best decisions we can, and we trust. That's the joy of being a Christian. So finally then, based on what we just said, let's talk about this fourth point, this, this fourth point, uh, expectations. See, we, we, we set our expectations to live in a fallen world, and yet, and I'll get to that and yet part here in, in just a moment, but we have to set our expectations to live in the fallen world in which we live. Let me, let me illustrate this. You know, I went uh, over to my aunt and uncle's house in West Virginia when they were just getting ready to move down to South Carolina. They were babysitting me at the time. And, and my uncle looked at me and said, Chad, do you want to go watch some boxing? And I was like, oh, Yeah. And I had this picture in my mind of something like Caesar's Palace with, you know, this big boxing ring and two guys duking it out and flashes going off and the bell ringing, somebody hitting the mat. So we get in the car and, man, I'm excited about this. And we're driving. I wasn't aware there was a boxing ring like this anywhere in West Virginia. But then we, we pull up behind a grocery store. And I thought, well, maybe we're going to get some snacks before we go to the, the ring. And my uncle gets down and says, okay, get out, Chad. And then he's rummaging through a dumpster. And I thought, well, what is this? Well, what he said was, Chad, do you want to go get some boxes? <laughs> oh, well, this is, this is rotten. You see, when you set your expectations here, but then when reality hits you here, you've got this gap that creates this thing that we call despair. It reminds me of this cartoon. Uh, this is from, I've, I've always been a fan of the Far Side cartoon. Two dogs talking, one dog wagging his tail of his, in the car looking at the other dog, and he says this, ha, 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 Biff, guess what? After we go to the drugstore and the post office, I'm going to the vets to get tutored. He's in for a pretty rough surprise. You know, at a, at a church that I interned in years ago, me and this guy's name is Billy Grammer. He's a, he was a counselor. Uh, I was going to be teaching that morning, and we're standing there at the copying machine, and I'm so stressed and frustrated. Uh, the copier's not working. I'll never forget the words that he stepped over to me and said. He said, you know what, Chad? Why would we ever expect anything to work right in a fallen world? I have never forgotten that. Why would we expect anything to work right in a fallen world? But when we set those expectations there, like everything's supposed to, to work right, life is supposed to work out right, we set ourselves up for despair. Uh, I think one of the reasons Christmas ends up being so hard for so many of us 
is because we have such high hopes. We still have to deal with the pain and disappointment of a fallen world. And, and frankly, I think sometimes this is, the sooner we become disillusioned with this world we live in, the better. But even with that truth, we Christians have other expectations as well. And the first one I want to talk about is hope. Even in a fallen world, Christians can have hope. And, and a good definition of hope is desire plus expectations. Not only do you really desire something, but you expect that it's going to happen. And Christians can have both an immediate hope and we can have an eternal hope. We can have an immediate hope in that every junky thing that is, brings misery in our lives that we wish had never, ever happened, God has a purpose for it. It is not for no reason that that thing happened to you that you wish would never have happened. As rotten as it is, as bad as it is, God will take you to where you don't want to be to make you the person that he would have you to be. And he's not here to make us happy. He's here to make us holy. He's not here to make us happy. So we can have this immediate hope when the, the, the bad things happen. And, you know, I've, I've got Star Wars on the brain right now. And I remember watching that very, very first Star Wars movie. I've, I've lived with these movies. My, I'm 45. Of these, these movies have been part of my life forever. And uh, do you remember the, the name of the very first Star Wars movie? It was called A New Hope. It was called A New Hope. Now, why was there a new hope? Because they believed that one had come into the world that was going to take away all of the evil. Does that sound familiar? That is the theme of so many movies. If you pay attention, how many movies are about the underdog that comes in the world that raises everyone's hopes that evil is going to be lifted from the land? Okay, that's Star Wars. That's, that's Lord of the Rings. That's fill in the blank. See, there's a reason those movies sell because that's a story that's written on the human heart. We are desperate for someone to come in and save us from the evils of the world. Well, someone did. Amen, brother. Amen. Preach it. It is. Jesus came, and that's why we can have hope. The opposite of hope is despair. So we can have both an immediate hope, we can have an eternal hope. In the short term, we are being made, we are being sanctified, and God is engineering our circumstances to do it. We'll ultimately have the perfect life with God in heaven. And then secondly, we can have peace. We can have peace in the fallen world. Well, what is peace? Peace is the harmonious relationship between God and humans. You know what the opposite of peace is? The opposite of peace is anxiety. If any of us right now are experiencing absolute perfect peace, you would have zero fear. You would have zero anxiety. I'll tell you, I'm not there yet. I wish I was there. I'm not there yet. I'm still battling the flesh. I still get anxious over stuff. But that's what perfect peace would look like. See, if we could, if we could grasp the truth of God, the, the depth to which we can grasp it is the depth to which we can have this peace. This is a theme in the book of Luke. As a matter of fact, we go to Luke 12, verse 22. He says, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. I mean, this is like the basic stuff. And it goes on in verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, 
and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. The best dating advice anybody ever gave me in my whole life was, Chad, if you want that special person, here's what you do. You start running towards the cross. You start running towards the things of God. And when you look over and you see somebody catching up to you, there's the person for you. I'll never forget that. You just pursue the kingdom. When it seems like everything around you is just coming unglued, you keep pursuing God. You keep after the church. You, you keep after those spiritual dis You keep after prayer. You keep after, you keep after church attendance. You keep after it. The world is always seeming unstable. Don't trust your circumstances, your money. Don't set your heart on the American dream. Don't set your heart on thinking that you're going to have it better than your parents did materialistically. That's when you set yourself up for despair. We have to have proper expectations of this world that we live in, though, if we're going to fully get peace. The world feels unstable. Our peace doesn't come from what's going on in the world. And lastly, have joy. Experience joy in a fallen world. I've, I've shared this definition of, of joy before. Uh, I found this in a, this was in a doctoral dissertation by Daniel Bistrom. He said, joy is the deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is in sovereign control of all creation. It's a deep assurance. This isn't about happiness. You know, Jesus Christ experienced perfect joy, and yet what did he do when his friend Lazarus died? He was deeply grieved. You can be sad and still have joy. You can grieve and still have joy. We don't grieve. Christians don't grieve as the world does. That means there's not a circumstance or a problem or a temptation that anyone who has ever lived has encountered that God did not have complete control over. Don't, things don't happen outside his control. And I know that... That does raise hard questions, but it's true. Joy is not happiness. Joy is not happiness. We are not going to be happy. Happiness is usually just based on favorable external circumstances. That's what happiness is. Things are going my way. I'm happy. God never changes. So while living in a fallen world, enjoy hope, peace, and joy. Enjoy hope, peace, and joy. I want to close with a story about a woman named uh, Kara Tippetts. Uh, she was an author and mother of four. Um, her husband, Jason, was a pastor. She, she passed away on March 22, 2015. She'd had a long struggle with breast cancer. And as the cancer was spreading, she was embracing her situation, trusting in God. She believed uh, that the cancer was not the point but that Christ was, and, and she was asking herself hard questions. How is she going to trust God in the midst of the sickness? And then how would she trust God in the middle of dying? And then in fall of 2014, somebody published her story, and, and she believed that suffering was not the absence of beauty, but an opportunity to understand God's love, to understand God's love on a deeper level. And this is what she said. This is from a book called The Hardest Peace. And these are her words. She said, my little body has grown tired of the battle and treatment is no longer helping. But what I see, what I know, what I have is Jesus. 
He has still given me breath, and with it I pray I would live well and fade well. By degrees, doing both living and dying is I have moments left to live. I get to draw my people close, kiss them, and tenderly speak love over their lives. I get to pray into eternity my hopes and fears for the moments of my loves. I get to laugh and cry and wonder over heaven. I do not feel like I have the courage for this journey, but I have Jesus, and he will provide. He has given me so much to be grateful for in that gratitude that wondering over his love will cover us all, and it will carry us, carry us in ways we cannot comprehend. Please pray with me. God, I pray, I pray that we would discipline our minds, that we would go to truth when we experience these kinds of earthly circumstances, God, that we will set our mind on things above, not anything on earth. God, impress upon us that what is on this earth will ultimately leave us unsatisfied, no matter how gifted we are, no, no matter where we are financially, no matter what we look like, God, everything on this earth is going to let us down. I pray that we would be rooted in the love that you have for us. I pray for those that are hurting out there, God. I pray that they would find hope. I pray that they would find it in you. I pray that you would bring the right person along their path, God that would show them and impress upon them your truth. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I'm going to close from the words of Psalm 98. This is the psalm that Joy to the World was based on. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Thank you so much for being here today. Hope you'll join us tonight. You have a Merry Christmas. You're dismissed. <laughs>